right, Shalom, everyone. We're going to get straight to it tonight. It's a uh, it's a very odd night outside. The Hurricane Ian, I think it has left Florida now. It obviously it it hit Tampa pretty hard, and it's uh it's off in the Atlantic, and it's it's kind of a slithery snake because it, you know, I think the last hurricane that hit the Tampa area was like over twenty years ago. Because when they come into the Gulf, they usually just you know, steamroll right ahead to New Orleans or Mobile, Alabama or wherever. And it's very hard for them to to twist and turn back into Naples and um and Tampa. And so it went across Florida and it's expected to twist back right like head on Charleston tomorrow. It was originally supposed to hit us in the morning, but now it's been delayed to <laughs> the hurricane is delayed. Uh, till tomorrow night, and uh, they say it's going to be a Category One, and or it could pick up speed or slow down and be a dud. We really don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it's getting pretty windy out there right now. And right before the sun set, like the sun was setting, and it was kind of a, uh, you know, kind of eerie out. And I look out my window and I see a whole branch blowing by. I'm like, yeah, I'm not taking a walk out there. So. I'm going to be hopped up on coffee and unable to take a late night walk down the streets when we're done. Um, Cause who knows what's going to be smacking me in the face. Uh, probably like an owl or something like that. But anyways, this is the black Dahlia hoax. And I am really looking forward to presenting this and recording it. It's been on my mind for a very long time. And if you look on the second page there, I originally published this in July of 2021 I did a second edition, a reworking of it uh, last spring. And this is unlike probably anything that you've heard about in the truth realm in terms of hoaxes and that kind of stuff. And as you can tell, I believe the entire Black Dahlia uh, episode was an intel operation. And as I read this to you, hopefully you will see how ridiculous this narrative is. So... Hopefully I can also get this past the YouTube censors. Let's get right to this. Part one, the girl was a mannequin. This is on page three if you need caught up to speed already. A year or so ago, I wrote about the Black Dahlia as something that legitimately happened in history. My conclusion at the time was that Hollywood and the Los Angeles Police Department were in on it. You will have to accept my apologies. Every so often, I am dead wrong about one thing or another, and this is one of those occasions. You're probably wondering why the change of heart. I guess you could say I've seen too much. I've pulled back too far too many curtains, and in doing so, have learned never to trust a conveniently hung drape. The murder of Elizabeth Short was a hoax. Oh, sure, Hollywood and the police were certainly in on it, but so was the girl. Every magician needs an assistance, especially when it comes to the saw and half trick, a crowd favorite. We are told Elizabeth Short was an aspiring actress, but that's not her real name. The implication here is that Elizabeth Short was only a role given to someone in a movie, and I now believe I know who that other person is. In order to learn her true identity, you will have to wait until part four. No, I am not being sadistic. There is simply too much to cover in parts one and two before we ever get around to the icing on the cake. And really, the Black Dahlia was so much more than a mere role, as we are dealing once again with a home-brewed specialty of intel, performance witchcraft. 
The mistake I made in declaring Elizabeth Short certifi certifiably dead can be found in the Gary DeVore connection. Just so we're clear, there isn't one. A connection, that is. Claiming to find a breadcrumb trail was probably the diluted drink of uh, preconceived notions mixed with wishful thinking. You're probably already confused and haven't the faintest clue who George or Gary DeVore is. Look at that. I said George DeVore instead of Gary DeVore. I don't know why. He was in the news a quarter of a century ago. We are told Gary DeVore was close friends with Kurt Russell and Arnold Schwarzenegger, for starters. Therefore, if you haven't the faintest clue who DeVore is, then that's a good thing. Spooks swim in the same circle, and it means you're not on the inside of it. The Austrian oak was one of the biggest spooks in Hollywood long before he became the governator. He even had his chalky meat hooks in the Tate family, who, if you recall, had a part in orchestrating the Manson murder hoax. That's not nearly the whole of DeVore's close connections, though. The Daily Mail claims he was Tommy Lee Jones' best man. Oh, but there's more. He dated a Jackson. You heard me right. And no, I'm not surprised because he is out of, Jan <laughs> because he is out of Janet Jackson's league. Or that such a pairing defies belief. She is most definitely out of his league. No arguments there. If anything, their pairing informs us of the game being played. Devor is the sort of man capable of receiving an MK Ultra slave into his bed. I'm not saying Devor was her pimp or handler. He was in proximity with them, though. And then coming to learn that he married the widow of Nat King Cole? You've got to be kidding me. He and Cole were probably Lodge brothers. One more pass around uh, worth mentioning is actress Season Hubley, whom he dated. Hubley was married for a time to his acting buddy, Kurt Russell. As I was saying, Gary DeVore made the news a quarter of a century ago. Barely, though. Hardly anyone in the media has made a deal of it, which led me to believe for the longest time that his murder was legitimate. It's not. The story goes as follows. DeVore was driving through the Mojave Desert, having just completed his latest script, The Big Steel. Its title may in fact say it all. The successful Hollywood screenwriter was previously known for such films as Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Raw Deal with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But this treatment was different, apparently. No, not really, but let's go with it for, for a moment. This time, DeVore promised to expose the U.S. government's role in the invasion of Panama. Oh, dear. The date was June 28, 1997, when DeVore departed Santa Fe, New Mexico, hoping to arrive home in Santa Barbara within a few short hours. The scriptwriter drove into the dead of night. See what I did there? His wife, Wendy DeVore, was waiting for him on the other end. Gary DeVore, however, was never seen again. Not alive, at least. The screenwriter's skeletal remains were eventually discovered by an amateur sleuth with a hunch. When his car was dredged from the California aqueduct one year later, detectives immediately observed several abnormalities. For one, DeVore had been driving with his lights off, not to mention the fact that his laptop and script were brazenly missing, as well as his hands. Strange, since... The aqueduct had been searched extensively after his absence, and there were no signs of impact. For the official account to work, 
Devorah would have needed to turn around on a motorway and drive three miles against traffic with his lights off and without any hands. What I mentioned at the time is that Devorah's disappearance and death had the all-too-familiar markings of a sacrificial killing. I still do. The fact that the writer of Time Cop was exposing anything, however, is at best laughable. Scriptwriters expose hidden secrets all the time. Anyone with woken eyes can see that. Devore being off because of his Panama script is peddling misdirection, and I fell for it. Hollywood is simply another wing of the intel community. The Daily Mail, and you can see a link there, I linked the article, later revealed that Devore was in fact working for the CIA. Whoop-de-doo. Tell me something I didn't know. Concerning his murder at the hands of Los Angeles occult members, DeVore was likely seeking reassignment. Come to think of it, everything I just said about DeVore's disappearance and recovery reads like a movie script within a movie. One can only wonder if he wrote himself into the part. The Daily Mail managed to drop several bombshells into their story without ever seeming to appreciate the connotations or expecting you to. The first involves divorce trip to the coroner's office fragments of his bones were said to be over 200 years old as if that's not suspicious i mean i figured gary devore was old but come on framing him as a potential waterloo veteran or survivor of the great chicago fire of 1871 is a stretch wouldn't you say am i missing something here seems like the obvious conclusion to make is that the cia pulled the old switcheroo and then there's his missing adverts. The Santa Barbara Sh Sheriff's Department slapped his mug on the poster and then put an emphasis on his right hand. Who even does something like that? Oh, I get it. I too understand jokes. It's so funny I forgot to laugh. We're supposed to identify him by his hand, you see, specifically, his broken, deformed right pinky. Get it? I do. The writer had no hands. Did you laugh that time? Yeah, me neither. And getting to the CIA part of their story, DeVore's widow, Wendy, told Daily Mail about the, quote, constant stream of phone calls from CIA officials in the month leading up to DeVore's death, unquote. Said no wife of a CIA agent ever. Sure, that's exactly what you do as soon as your husband is dismembered by the occult. You go to the media and tell everyone he was a spook and that you were his secretary doodling messages on a notepad. A show of hands. Does anybody still think Gary DeVore was murdered because of a movie script? Ridiculous. Wendy DeVore told Daily Mail the following. When we first married, he told me he got a lot of calls from government agencies. He told me to ignore it. So I did. If the phone rang, I could take a message or say he was out, but not to speak to them, really. <laughs> we... <laughs> we... <laughs> We had a few at first, then not very many. Then in the last month, one man was calling all the time. He was dealing in things that you're not necessarily supposed to deal in. I found out a lot of people in Hollywood had these connections with the CIA and knew things that will never be public. After he disappeared, things just didn't add up. <laughs> this is an actual quote, by the way. It's just, it's, <laughs> I, I'm laughing reading it. Okay. It's very easy to sound like a conspiracy theorist. She's still talking. But when you're married to someone, you know little things about them that seem insignificant but are actually crucial. 
I know these are things that don't add up. My <laughs> my favorite part is where he said she can answer the phone. Uh, just uh, but uh, let's see. Wait. Oh, take a message, but don't really speak to them. The only thing that doesn't add up is Wendy DeVore's ability to connect the CIA with Hollywood while still failing to recognize one of her husband's scripts when it's spat out from the Xerox machine, piping hot. But even that is misdirection. You've heard it said that loose lips sink ships. Well, nobody offed her for divulging. It's like I was saying earlier, Intel loves exposing secrets and then sitting back to watch us deny it. The PSYOP works both ways. All signs point to the fact that Wendy DeVore was doing her part in fleshing the fantasy out. The Daily Mail then tells us the CIA declined to comment. Oh, I get jokes. That's funny. Because she's probably CIA too. As you may have guessed by now, this is the second draft to my Black Dahlia was a hoax manuscript. I may look distracted, but I do believe these excursions serve a purpose. I guess you could say I've learned a thing or two since then. Corrections are necessary. When writing the first draft a year ago, I apologized for being wrong about the murder of Elizabeth Short. But now I see that I was wrong about so much more than that. Even the death of Gary DeVore was a hoax. Now that we have gotten that out of the way, let's get back to what I had started out saying. The Twilight Zone will come to some use. It so often does, but only in our peripheral vision. There are other Hollywood productions which will need discussed in turn, but right away starting out, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone titled The After Hours, wherein we learn that some people are simply mannequins. It's a true classic if you haven't seen it. If I ruin the surprise for you, then you should probably know that I just killed two birds, two birds with one stone. It's another important conclusion of this paper, particularly in part two. Try to act surprised when we finally get to it. It originally aired on June 10th, 1960, and was written by the show's creator, Rod Serling. On a side note, Serling was a New York-born Jew. Seems only logical that he would be. The thing about mannequins is they have a doppelganger somewhere in the world, a real person whom they're modeled after. Again, we'll get to that. Oh, and another thing. Mannequins are split at the waistline. I hope you like history because I'm about to dictate another lesson. The body of Elizabeth Short was discovered on January 15, 1947. In other news, the war was over and Intel needed something to do. Nearby, the Lookout Mountain movie studio in Laurel Canyon was ramping up their productions. Even spooks gotta eat, you know. Elsewhere, President Truman disbanded the OSS in 1945, but apparently the short-lived Central Intelligence Group, or the CIG, SIG, I guess, if you're into acronyms, wasn't making Daddy proud because they too were traded in for everybody's favorite intel group, the CIA. Probably just another good cop, bad cop routine. You tell me. One final comment before continuing. The murdered body of Elizabeth Short will be shown. She may pop up on any given page, and the pictures are graphic. But you probably knew that already. You've been warned. Are we simply staring at a mannequin? That is my conclusion. You are free to make up your own mind. That, as always, you are under no obligation to believe the official narrative. People are murdered every day in Los Angeles County. Nearly every single victim you've never heard about. 
It is the media's job to burn every Intel production, including what they were secretly cooking up at Lookout Mountain, into the collective consciousness. And what I'm trying to tell you is that the Black Dahlia was one such project. And we are on page 11, if you need caught up. Don't say I didn't warn you. The weather report for January 15, 1947, cast sunny Southern California into a cold, dreary morning. At approximately 10 a.m., Betty Bursinger went walking with her three-year-old daughter through the tree-lined streets of Learmart Park in Los Angeles, angling for the shoe shop. With the outbreak of the war, development had slowed in the City of Angels. Despite Japan's surrender some 17 months earlier, entire lots groomed for the suburban sprawl remained abandoned. It was in one such undeveloped field, and only within inches of the sidewalk, that Bursinger stumbled upon what she first described as a discarded mannequin that had been severed in two at the waistline, its lower half positioned a foot away from the upper. You heard it from Bursinger first. Plant a red flag upon that often repeated detail. Better yet, I have already done it for you. Bursinger is giving us the truth, but then insisting that we deny it. The body of Elizabeth Short was a mannequin, a darn good mannequin, but we're dealing with the powers that should not be and the back alleyways of Hollywood. What, you don't think Intel was capable of working with mannequins? I will remind you of Roswell, same year. Actually, when I wrote that line, I had... <laughs> I was talking to Josh about this earlier. I had a whole uh, paper on Roswell. I was almost done with it on how just just as ridiculous, one big hoax and a uh, big intel operation, and then I lost the whole paper. It was it was it was awful. It took me a long time, and I've never. It was so painful. I've I've never rewritten it. Officers Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald arrived on the scene within minutes. The LAPD followed in their wake. Investigators noted that the woman's body seemed to have been posed. She was lying on her back with both arms raised above her shoulders, elbow bent at right angles, legs twisted and spread out in a display of seductiveness. Much as one might imagine her position, a mannequin, among numerous other cuts on her thigh and breast, portions of which were sliced away, Short's face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating a look known as the Glasgow smile. Uh, if if you need that described for you, that's kind of where they base the Joker's smile off of. Mannequin again. Our artist is simply leaving his calling card. In a little while, you shall see who that is. The most peculiar aspect, however, is that she'd been completely drained of blood, leaving her skin pallid white. Mm-hmm. You heard that right. White, like a mannequin. And there was no blood at the crime scene, none, nada, not even in the weeds below her. You'd think they'd find something. You'd think they'd find something in the way of blood, anything, but no. Her mortician had taken the time to wash her outside and in, stuff everything back into its proper order, and then carry both ends of her severed corpse to the crime scene undetected, without spilling anything out. Sure, 
In a later interview, Bersinger said children rode up and down that street on their bikes and route to school, and she only thought to report the mannequin because they might get spooked. Keep hamming it up, Bersinger. At 10 in the morning, school would have already been in session. Kids had already traversed that street, and nobody thought to report a woman cut in two. If the fourth grade classroom buzzed with talk of the sick-looking mannequin down on South Norton Avenue, then we are not told. You'd think insects would be crawling all over her, feasting. But no. What's this? Why are there pictures of Betty Bursinger calling the police? Online captions tell us the call regards the woman she discovered in Lamert Park. After fleeing to a nearby neighbor's house, are we expected to believe that she first hired a camera crew? Looks like her photographer tried various angles, hoping to find Bersinger's better side. You know, cast her in the right light. Perhaps we are on the set of a John Houston movie. Difficult to tell. Is that a map of Lamart Park on the wall? Probably trying to perfect her walking route, I guess. You can see a K there for killer. <laughs> Edit. The internet explains these photos as Betty Bersinger's um, only reenacting her role, as if I couldn't tell. Good thing they told us. Because apparently dialing up police headquarters or the local lodge, same thing, leaves much to the imagination. People need to see how Bersinger dialed that very important call and more than anything, her body posture. Normally, when you discover a discarded body in the field, you call the police, answer a few questions, and then vamoose, hoping to wash that bad episode from the front burner of your cognition. You don't buy a mink coat with the money you made on your latest acting gig and make a photo shoot out of it. This is how crisis actors ensured their part in the newspapers before television became the standard for programming. The first reporter on the scene worked for Randolph Hearst. Wait, let, let me try this again. Randolph Hearst. Did you catch that? If you need a refresher, Hearst is the architect of yellow journalism and the 1898 sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor was a false flag event, but also his magnum opus. Hearst literally invented a war and then sold Americans on its legitimacy. That's not even debated anymore. That's not even a conspiracy theory. Like, that's pretty much admitted. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. Elsewhere, we have already seen Hearst and the Hearst family at work in past papers, namely the rape accusation thrust upon Alexander Pantages of the Pantages Theater in Hollywood, a plot cooked up by John and Bobby Kennedy's father, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. Senior. I'll say that again. The, the, the president, John F. Kennedy, his father, uh, worked with uh, Randolph Hearst to make up a story about Pantages. And secondly, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, another royally flamboyant hoax. The mannequin murder is one more that you can pile onto that list. Her name was Agnes Underwood. As a first assignment, the Herald Express had sent her to interview Amelia Earhart, someone else I hope to write on soon. Her first assignment, mind you, this would have been in 1935 when Earhart completed her flight from Honolulu to Oakland. She'd go missing two years later, a, a hoax I've been meaning to get to. Underwood's biggest interview to date happened that same year in 1935 when she hid the alleged murderer, Hazel Glab, 
in her own house, uh, this is quote, in her own house until the trial wrapped. And when the verdict came down, Aggie hit the presses with her exclusive interview. Ooh. Huh? What? <laughs> Was the Hazel Glab murder trial even real? I'm thinking no. Glab is listed as a silent film actress, a Chicago bootlegger, and a home entertainer of the Hollywood elite. She danced professionally for a, for a time with Philip Ainsworth, the former husband of actress and tragic screen goddess Barbara Lamar. She managed much of this while dating William R. Uh, McIntyre, a Los Angeles cop, whom she also managed to shoot in the neck. This is like you, you try to read what's, you know, you look into this, it's like such a tangled yarn. How do you even hold a murder trial for someone who isn't present in the courtroom or in Glab's case, have their whereabouts unknown? You can't. And you don't have journalists harboring murderers simply to grab their scoop, unless that is you work for Hearst and Hearst is writing the stories. As an added flourish, her daughter's Girl Scout troop was meeting in the house while Underwood hid Glab from authorities. Underwood would then report on nearly every major murder case in the city. But in 1947, Elizabeth Short was her biggest story to date. Who came up with the name Black Dahlia? Underwood did. Oh, so who solved the case? Underwood again. You see, Black Dahlia was Agnes Underwood's final case. According to Underwood, she was pulled from reporting on the case twice each time without warning or explanation. She was then informed that her new assignment was a promotion to the city editor of the Herald Express. Not too shabby. The media would have you think that Agnes Underwood was removed on the basis that she was too good of a reporter, that she discovered who the killer was and needed to be shut up. That makes no sense whatsoever. Underwood never once insinuated that anyone threatened her. The police sure weren't interested in finding out what she knew, but that's a given. Many years after the Dahlia case went cold, it was always intended to, Aggie told her children and grandchildren that she knew who had murdered Elizabeth Short. When asked for the name of the killer, all she would say was, he's dead and it doesn't matter anymore. Sure, let's go with that. Underwood was probably being nice to her children without letting them in on the biggest secret of all that they were uninitiated and therefore couldn't be let in on the nature of the beast, namely her employer. That she loved creating stories just as much as Hearst did, and just as importantly that she was in on the hoax. Just look at Underwood hanging out with Bob Hope. He's not sure if she knows, but she's not sure if she should tell him that she does know, just perhaps not the same thing. How awkward. It's a boys' club and secret society thing. Look, you don't get to swap books with Bob Hope and play the game of shifty eyes unless you're in the know about something. Underwood did her time, received her reward, and if she was pulled halfway through the swan song, it was only to enhance the psychodrama. And here we are some 75 years later, still trying to figure out what the hell happened. See what I mean? The performance still has magic left in it. The reason I ultimately decided to take another look into the murder of Elizabeth Short probably has something to do with my haphazardly stumbling upon this very photo on the internet. We are told Elizabeth Short is at the beach sometime in 1945, less than two years before her murder. But look closely. 
See the black line etched around the entire frame of her body? It runs alongside her legs, her shoulders, arms, and ribs, even her feet. Could they make it look, look any less fake? Which reminds me, didn't the killer send numerous letters to the press using only newspaper cutouts glued onto paper? He did. We haven't gotten that far yet, but I get the feeling that the same creative department had a hand in her beach photo. There's another beach photo of Elizabeth Short. Same bathing suit, perhaps same location, but hard to tell. Only here she can be seen sitting down with some guy named Eddie. Intel didn't come up with the full character's name for the boyfriend. He's simply Eddie. For all I know, he's with the General Intelligence Directorate. That would be the Egyptian Secret Service. You'll know what I'm getting at when this is over. Once again, we're looking at another fake. It's just as fake as the first. Same black lines dominate Eddie. He may have been sitting with the blonde, for all I know. Better yet, a pair of redheads. Poor Elizabeth was probably sitting alone. Really, though, they should have left the first image of Elizabeth Short standing next to a palm in just as low of quality, or else I might have never noticed. To be clear, there are undoctored pictures of Elizabeth Short. She was 22 while posing for a photo shoot in front of John Marshall High School. Take a note of her age, but also the name of the school. I'm getting in character, I see. Ready for the big day. Short was murdered within a few short months, perhaps weeks afterwards. Still uncomfortable, though, as her body posture shows. But once you learn who Short truly is, you'll see for yourself that she was almost always a stiff around the camera. There are several pictures from her trip to John Marshall making the rounds online. I chose this one, but they're all essentially the same. Awkward as modeling goes. The photographer probably unloaded a roll and then printed the few where Short managed to not squint her eyes. Then again, not even the photographer had any style, telling us he was an amateur at best or only pretending to be one. Go ahead, do an internet search on John Marshall High School. The campus has personality. It's brimming with character. All one needs to do is point the lens at the front uh, facade and should even his trigger finger have a smidgen of talent, the artistry will present itself regardless of his actor. 22. That's how old Elizabeth Short was when she died. They like to slip the 22 in there because it designates Short as the master builder. Wink, wink. You see, two and two makes four, which signifies a human construct, which is fixed and squared. Again, when Shaggy, Scooby-Doo, and the gang finally unmask Elizabeth Short, you will see what I mean. The school was named after the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He was also a Freemason, but not just any Freemason. Starting in 1793, Marshall served as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Virginia. In 1807, Marshall was called to preside over the Aaron Bird trial. It was a fake trial, and the shooting of Alexander Hamilton was a hoax. And anyways, I, I'm convinced of that. And anyways, the Black Dahlia was a movie. The woman playing Elizabeth Short was posing on a movie set because that's what John Marshall High School ultimately is, a movie set. And all I search for John Marshall High School as a shooting location delivers the following productions. Try Not to Drool, Grease, Rebel Without a Cause, The Wonder Years, Boy Meets World, Growing Pains, Pretty in Pink, Uncle Buck, Bachelor Party, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Space Jam, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Can't Hardly Wait, Gross Point Blank, Simon and Simon, 
Highway to Heaven, Mr. Novak, The A-Team, Big Bang Theory, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and the Van Halen music video, Hot for Teacher. Here's one more to add to the collection. Elizabeth Short standing in front of John Marshall may have been chosen as a promotional shoot, wherein the message was made clear among other spooks. The Black Dahlia production is a go. We are on page, uh, what page are we on? 21, if you need caught up. Getting back to the doctored photos. Here we can see a photo of Elizabeth Short reportedly taken at the crime scene. Her body is, as you already know, sawn in half, but it is terribly difficult to tell with the blanket covering her. It was the very first photo of Elizabeth Short printed up in the press. And who printed it? You are correct if your guess was the Herald Examiner. That would be Hearst. You will tell me they covered a blanket over her body for modesty purposes, as they would not otherwise be capable of publishing the photo for the public. Why not just blur the body out then? Or better yet, show it from a clever angle. The blanket is fake. Nobody added a blanket to the body of Elizabeth Short at the crime scene. Her covering is given to us as courtesy of the boys down at the lab. But that's not the only fakery applied to it. Elizabeth Short's face was manipulated. Where is the Glasgow smile that they all talk about? Whose lips are those? That's not even her eyes and nose. The mutilations have been completely scrubbed to such a degree that we're no longer looking at Short's face. It's another imaginative uh, recreation. The imaginative artist was none other than Hearst's right-hand propaganda man, Howard Burke. Here we see a picture of Burke probably taking a call from the OSS, receiving details on who was supposed to bomb what harbor or sink our next ship, that sort of thing. You see, after the false flag sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor that initiated Intel's century-long false narrative in Cuba, Hearst decided a war with Japan might be a good thing. His newspaper war with the empire st uh, started in 1906, lasting 35 years until the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Sure, Hearst didn't coin the phrase yellow peril, just as he didn't create the tactics to yellow journal journalism, but he mastered both early on. Regarding the former, Hearst's very first article arrived in 1907 proclaiming the yellow peril is here. His attacks continued during the First World War, even while Japan aligned with the Allies against Germany. The yellow peril rhetoric then continued after the war, culminating with a motion picture. By 1933, Time magazine noted the obvious, that the yellow peril has for 30 years been a great circulation getter for the Hearst Papers. If Howard Burke's part in the propaganda wasn't predictive programming, then I don't know what else is. I mean, I don't know what to make else to make of these two pictures here. The war would not begin in Europe until September of 1939. Japan would not bomb Pearl Harbor until December of 1941. And yet, here we see two full-page illustrations drawn by Burke in 1937 for the Los Angeles Examiner, telling us precisely how Japan would draw us into the war. That's all, folks. I'm done. Technically, in the first image, Burke has San Francisco being bombed, telling us that one of Intel's favored PSYOP cities was at one time considered. But then notice he has drawn an arrow directly to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Hawaii has always had a part to play in the drama. His second sketch was published in 1938, thereby saving Japan a lot of Intel work. Don't you think? 
probably not the best idea to publish a detailed map of your greatest defense outpost, complete with precise locations of barracks, forts, harbors, runways, shipping lanes, radio towers, and anti-aircraft gun emplacements. But what, what do I know? Just goes to show that the media's job is creating the news. Page 24. From the very start of the investigation, we are told the LAPD was forced to form a symbiotic relationship with William Randolph Hearst to solve the crime. Wow, this movie is really getting good. Too bad it got snubbed by the Academy. Hearst's propo uh, proposal to the police was that he would share crucial, crucial information, essentially all information that his team of reporters had uncovered, if the LAPD would grant exclusives in return. LAPD homicide investigator Captain Donahoe grudgingly accepted the terms. Suck it up, Donahoe. On January 21st, less than one week after the murder, the examiner received their first big clue. Oh, gee, is it the killer stoking his ego? It is. A person claiming to be Short's killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, newspaper editor, to personally congratulate him on their coverage, probably rubbing one off as he did so. He then stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further as some sort of cat-and-mouse game. To prove his claim, the caller additionally told Richardson to, quote, Expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail, unquote. One can only wonder if the caller had a good view of the reflection pool from his office and the munitions built in Washington. All right, had a mute there. Someone's probably practiced his best James Cagney impression in between bites of his ham and cheese sandwich before finally dialing Richardson. I'm not going to do James Cagney, uh, but in my head, you know, I was having him say, you dirty rat. No, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. You dirty, <laughs> you dirty rat. <laughs> Apparently, despite wanting police investigators to chase his tail, the killer had already cleverly figured out that Hearst was working with the LAPD, which is why his package and overly suspicious manila envelope complete with individual words cut and pasted from newspaper clippings, was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner rather than the buttons. It arrived on January 24th, three days after the phone call. You figure it would take that long for the package to travel across the country after being dropped off at some random mailbox near the corners of 20th Street and Constitution Avenue. Or perhaps we're simply reading the artistic stylings of Howard Burke. The envelope contained Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, random names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. Who is Mark Hansen? Just one of dozens upon dozens of potential suspects. Specifically, he was a nightclub owner. Why would Intel send an address book? To tell you who the other scripted players are. Duh. It seems like everyone involved was vying to be included with the clues. The care package had been carefully clean, uh, cleaned with gasoline, just as Short's body had, directing police to their next clue that the package had been sent by the killer. Regardless, prints were lifted. Uh-oh. In return, investigators sent the, the packet right back um, to Washington. 
this time to the FBI building, hoping for Prince identification. Here, the Wikipedia adds, however, the prints were compromised in transit and thus could not be properly analyzed. Oh, say it ain't so. The intel agent's identity was spared. That must have been such a relief. There were more letters. Some of them went to other newspapers, but the killer had a penchant for the Herald Express and the Examiner, obviously, seeing as how Hearst was such a badass and Captain Donahoe probably couldn't head up an actual murder investigation if his career depended upon it. One of these letters to Hearst even read, quote, I will give up uh, in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me, unquote. So does the killer want to be found or not? So confusing. The sheer number of letters which began pouring in would secure the fact that we're dealing with the most convoluted and confusing game of peekaboo ever, as it was always intended to be. Clearly, the investigation was designed for public conception from the very get-go. The uh, procedure, uh, procedural motions was a well-oiled script. And I probably mentioned this already, but the killer was never intended to be found. Intel wanted a PI novel where everyone guessed who the killer was without ever getting around to writing the final paragraph. There is no big reveal. In that way, the story never really ends. It just goes on and on, and we are left to guessing, which is where we find ourselves today. The alchemical juices are still cooking. In the second part, we will take a magnifying glass out and at some of those suspects. They're actors. That's all they really are. There is one suspect who was too good of an actor, as the world came to know him by another name. Like the real Elizabeth Short, he too will be unmasked. As usual, I will try my darndest to report the proceedings without rolling my eyes. If only you could see my computer screen, cracked, probably from so many pendulum swings of sarcasm. It comes with the profession. So if you need caught up, we're on page 27, part two, brought to you by a Hollywood studio. Official biographies place Elizabeth Short's birthplace in Boston. Wrong. I'll give you a hint as to her true identity. The real Black Dahlia's nativity scene was more than likely Alexandria. No, not in Washington. The other Alexandria. Intel is simply doing all they can to pass notes in class without giving up the ghost. Even if she were, Boston is a major hub for the Jesuit ruling elite's families. And while we're at it, let's just throw in a handful of Freemasons. They buy. Thank you. They buy their donuts there too. The bunch of Grapes Tavern on King Street in Boston became the first duly constituted and chartered lodge in the Americas. It's all a hunch, but if I had to guess, Intel is simply giving the woken eyes one more clue as to who's involved. Product placement. For example, had the project originated with Benjamin Franklin's Lodge, we might come to find that Elizabeth Short was born in Philadelphia. With Boston, we're simply getting to know the Black Dahlia sponsors. The Black Dahlia has her own wiki page. It lists 1943 through 1947 as her years active. See what I mean? Are you trying to tell me she wasn't activated until the age of 19, Wikipedia? Apparently so. In Medford, of all places. I checked. Medford is only a short five-mile stint outside of Boston, and it has its very own lodge. That's where the Black Dahlia project was probably commissioned then in 1943. Great. If I ever see lights of red and blue in the rearview mirror while driving through Medford, I'm totally screwed. 
there's no way I'm stopping for donuts. I'll just hightail it out of town at, at a clean five miles per hour. Then again, even the cops in Los Angeles case were probably all Freemasons. That's it. I'm never returning there either. Elizabeth Short was 19 when she set out with her father, Cleo Short. The number 19 may be significant on the account of the Sun Tarot card in the Major Arcana. The esoteric difference between 19 and 1 is that the fool makes up the later, whereas the former is a higher vibration. 19 designates a new phase of life armed with knowledge and, quite unlike the fool, is therefore prepared for what is to come. They ended up in Vallejo, California for a spiel. Still 1943. It is there where Cleo worked at uh, Mare Island Naval Shipyard, it's now changed its name, on San Francisco Bay. In mid-1943, while the war was hot, the father-daughter team moved to Los Angeles, but Elizabeth later accepted a job at Camp Cook in Lampock, California. Recognize the name? Camp Cook? I didn't either. Turns out Camp Cook later became known as Vandenberg Air Force Base. Today, it is Vandenberg Space Force Base. Oh, sigh. The Space Force is the Air Force's latest spinoff. Consider that the Air Force is a spinoff of the Army, but seeing as how there's water above the firmament, you'd think they'd be better off sending up the Navy. But I digress. Vandenberg is NASA's West Coast port, telling us it is selected as an epicenter of propaganda. If you're having a difficult time following along, Elizabeth Short was likely an intel project from the moment she left Boston. On September 23, 1943, Short was arrested in Santa Barbara for underage drinking. Bummer. Wasn't she working on a military base during wartime? She would have been surrounded by pilots contemplating their impending doom. I thought booze and STDs were more readily accessible than the flu. Either her training didn't go so well and we are witnessing a broken robot needing pliers and a screwdriver, or the script was unfolding exactly as planned. You tell me. She was promptly sent back to Medford. Uh-oh. The Black Dahlia is getting reprogrammed in the back alley behind a coffee and donut shop. She may have been underage as drinking is concerned, but why would the state of California send a young woman back to Boston simply for receiving a DUI? Here, let's try this again. In Boston, 20-year-old Elizabeth Short was potentially commissioned again and then sent southbound to Florida. Already, Short had spent several winters in Florida due to her asthma, telling us she came from a family with money. This time around, she hooked up with Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., it's a long name, a decorated United States Army Air Force officer, then at the 2nd Air Commando Group, where he was training for deployment to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations. And we're talking some deeply penetrated behind enemy line stuff. We are told Gordon was in a plane crash over India, but that he proposed and she accepted. A second plane crash on August 10th, 1945 would announce his death and with less than a week to go before Japan surrendered. Short returned to Los Angeles in July of 1946 in order to pay a visit to Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, whom she had been acquainted with while in Florida. Who said California could keep her out? It is here in the hundred or so miles ranging from San Diego to Los Angeles County, where Short would live out the final six months of her role, scratch that, her life. Her first known residence was a two-week jaunt at a downtown Long Beach hotel, a few miles away from where uh, Fickling was stationed at the Army Airfield. And of course, Long Beach is my own hometown, so I can picture exactly where this hotel, this uh, 
this house hotel is. Same city, though. It is Fickling who paid the bills. The building at 53 Linden Avenue still exists. I actually attended a church on Linden Avenue. Though the neighboring drugstore is no more. That's where Short received her name, you know, Black Dahlia. I get the fact that she had jet black hair, but if Short had a habit of dressing in black, as we are told she did, then that is yet another tip-off as to the role she was attempting to embody. Still, how exactly does someone receive a nickname during a two-week stint? I have visited hundreds of places, staying at dozens of them for two weeks or, or more at a time, and nobody at the local drugstore or donut shop thought to name me, nor would they likely remember me if I wash, washed up to shore six months later. The drugstore is probably just a front for spooks. Elizabeth Short simply arrived on a business trip, a hop and a skip from the office. You know, getting in character, reorienting herself. The last person to see her live was Robert Manley, but his friends knew him as Red. We are told the 25-year-old ex-Army corporal gave her a ride from San Diego to Los Angeles and then dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel. As you might suspect, the buttons were all over Manley like stink on a monkey. Tell me this isn't the scene from a movie. No, it is simply red, taking the old lie detector test down at the local lodge. Is it another reenactment for dramatic effect, like the Betty Bursinger photos? We are not told. Such intensity, though. And look at those squiggly lines. The guy is off the charts. You had to have been there, I guess. In yet another scene from the Black Dahlia movie, we see Manly in the police station identifying a handbag and a black suede shoe which had been conveniently discovered on top of a garbage can rather than inside of a garbage can. It's almost as if the killer was indecisive about whether to throw them away or offer them up as a free prize to a passing bum. Should I have discovered a purse and a shoe sitting on top of a garbage can? I can guarantee you my first thought wouldn't be, I wonder if this belonged to that woman who was sawn in half. But I'm not the one writing this story, am I? Good thing Red is on the case. Our leading man is tall and handsome. No, he's wearing a black shirt in this photo, whereas he wore a white shirt prior. So we're looking at a costume change. The purse and the shoe were discovered on January 24th, same day in which the suspicious-looking package containing the address book arrived at the Herald Express. If the killer were trying to prove his identity, why not send the purse and the shoe as well? And why only one shoe? Was he keeping the other as a souvenir? The purse and the shoe were spotted near Norton Avenue, some two miles from where Short's body had been found. That's like 20 miles in L.A. measurements, but whatever. They were wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Gas prices were so much more affordable then. Naturally, his wife was, no, was uh, not pleased to learn what he'd been up to, but it looks like they made up for the press. Agnes Underwood, our favorite reporter, covered the story in which the old dirtbag assured everyone that his getaway with Beth had sent him back on the straight and narrow. Dylan police headquarters? It appears so. That's a different coat than last time. Looks like the police offered Red another costume change. How nice of them. Such a productive photo shoot. We're on page 34. More shots of Manly. Now he is wearing a hat. These would be perfect over the fireplace. Since when did mug shoots become glamour shots? Oh, Hollywood. The photographer's name was Perry Fowler. 
I decided to look him up on the internet and discovered an obituary by the New York Times. He died in 1966 at the age of 56. The paper says, and I quote, Perry Fowler, a photographer whose World War II exploits read like a spy thriller. Seriously, New York Times. <laughs> you're going to make it this easy for me? The Times then goes on to claim, really, you're going to love this. Mr. Fowler was director of photography for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, except for his war service in the Navy and in the Office of Strategic Services. That would be the OSS. He has spent 38 years in Southern California journalism. End quote. If you need this spilled out for you, Southern California journalism was brought to you by the OSS. Any questions? Manly stay at police headquarters may have been an all-expense-paid vacation, courtesy of Hearst Productions, but apparently it comes at a cost, as the man frisking him is having a little too much fun. Is he even an... Is he even a fuzz? I mean, he looks like mafia. Looks more like Mickey Cohen's obnoxious younger cousin. Same had an overcoat as the Perry Fowler publicity shoot, though, telling us he's on his way in for the glamour photo session. Wait, what's this? Is it the hand of Elizabeth Short's killer cutting up the latest edition of the Herald Express for his next letter? We're not told. You'd almost think the killer worked from, from a desk at the newspaper, but that's probably none of my business. Just another scene from the movie, I guess. Nothing to see here, folks. Hearst needed a kaleidoscope of personalities to fill his columns naturally. That's why they cast 27-year-old Leslie Dillon, a.k.a. Jack Sands. His character is described as a bellhop and former mortician's assistant. Uh-oh, is that a clue? A mortician's, a mortician's assistant. You're probably thinking, why is he a suspect, though? Leave it to the fact that he was also an aspiring writer and thought it might be a good idea to, to, make, the LA, to make LAPD uh, psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul D. River a pen pal. I said pen pale, but pen pal. Whereas he might confess his intense interest in sadism and sexual violence, seeing as how nobody was offering him any book deals. Right. During their correspondences, Dylan offered up one of his friends, a certain Jeff Connors, as a likely suspect to the Black Dahlia movie. Eventually, D. River believed that Connors was a make-believe friend existing only in Dylan's imagination and that it was he who had sawed the girl in half, not Connors. In December of 1948, Dylan agreed to meet with D. River and was given the choice of one of three cities, Los Angeles, Phoenix, or Las Vegas. Dylan chose Las Vegas. The story then becomes even more colorful as the River and undercover LAPD officers hold Dylan captive for something like two days. Apparently, Dylan was able to sail a postcard from his window pleading for help. A pedestrian found it on the street below and reported his predicament to the authorities. They then proceeded to drive towards San Francisco, where Dylan was incapable of finding Connors. After offering intimate details about the crime, facts apparently given to his, uh, him by his imaginary friend, the Buttons hauled his ass down to Los Angeles. Strange that he would have insider's information when police surmised that he was in San Francisco during the murder, huh? You'd almost think he is a successful writer after all and likes to appear in the production. Once again, Dylan was given his very own photo shoot in police headquarters. Obviously not a repeated performance, as his character cannot be found elsewhere on the internet. 
The photographer tried various angles while Dylan repeatedly wrestled with his top collar button, hoping to cast him in the right light. Here we can see Dylan's agent staring in. Or is he his handler? Edit. Oh, never mind. It's only creepy Captain Francis Kearney. And but and again, this Dylan character, you can't find him anywhere else. He doesn't exist. Just an actor. There's the whole gang surrounding, surrounding Dylan. An intense interrogation, if ever I've seen one. Looks like Dylan is fully in character, complete with limp hands. No wonder why he and the Butsons struggled so. Look, <laughs> Looks nice, though. J. Paul DeRiver is on the far left, looking a lot like Inspector Clouseau. Next, we find Detective Lieutenant William Burns and Chief of Police C.B. Horrell sitting stage right as Captain Kearney, playing the bad cop is my guess. Their road trip to Las Vegas and San Francisco ultimately paid off as investigators soon learned that Jeff Connors did indeed exist, only his real name is Artie Lane. Why would Artie Lane befriend Leslie Dillon in San Francisco and tell him his name was Jeff Connors? Probably for the same reason Jack Sands would tell police he was Leslie Dillon. Actors. Case in point, Artie Lane was employed in Hollywood by Columbia Pictures. You'll probably want to take a note of that. They like to throw Bugsy Siegel into the ring as a potential witness because he's obviously a spook. You know, to advertise your own. If you're unfamiliar as to who Bugsy is, he was a mobster who had a movie named after him, but also a Jew. Both the best of both worlds. Bugsy built a criminal empire through bootlegging, gambling, and handshakes, which involved bodies and trunks, before finally growing soft and setting up shop in a lizard, little desert town we know today as Las Vegas, an obvious Intel project, where he opened the famous Flamingo Hotel. The mobster helped to raise somebody named Michael Bowen. In turn, in turn, Bowen transformed the 60s into performance art and, as we have already seen in past papers, had an intimate part in the ridiculous 1967 March to the Pentagon style. And I, I'd, writ, I'd written on, on Michael Bowen uh, elsewhere. Maybe I'll, I'll read that one week. There's more to the story, of course. It involves Bugsy's right-hand man, Mickey Cohen, and the Los Angeles Times. Norman Chandler was the publisher of the Los Angeles Times in 1945, and he was a suspect. Hitting it close to home, are we, boys? But before him, his father was the publisher of the LA Times from 1917 until 1944. And even before that, his grandfather was a publisher from 1881 until 1917. Of course, the editor of the Times would be a suspect. Best to let everyone know who's your daddy. Hearst wasn't the only big buckaroo in town. And besides, even newspaper men got to eat. Might as well make news, if only to secure another trip to the lobster bar. Apparently, Chandler impregnated Short while she was working as a call girl for Madame Brenda Allen. You see how all these, these spooks, they all try to get a part in the story. And we can't have that. That's where Mickey Cohen steps in. But even those details are rather vague. Allen had begun her labors as a sex worker in Los Angeles sometime in the 1930s, rising to prominence near the outbreak of the war as the successor to Anne Forrester, a.k.a. Black Widow. Forrester had previously run a 5,000-a-week prostitution syndicate, but was convicted and handed a prison sentence. In turn, Allen would receive hers, but not without a little show and tell. In 1948, an attempted robbery of Brenda Allen and her then-lover, LAPD Vice Squad Sergeant Elmer Jackson 
in which Jackson, Jackson shot and killed the perpetrator, resulted in yet another nationwide scandal. During a raid on Allen's bordello at 8436 Herald Way above the Sunset Strip, police then confiscated a conveniently displayed box of index cards containing the names, contact info, and sexual uh, predilections of about 250 men whom the Los Angeles Times described as notables of the film colony. And of course, you see another stage photo there. Is that what they used to call it? The list was teased but never released. Even the photo looks fake. Up to this point, Jackson had been attempting to shake down Mickey Cohen. In turn, and at an unrelated trial, Cohen announced that he had recordings between Jackson and Allen made from police headquarters. The short of it is this. Allen was paying for police protection, and even the fuzz were on her naughty positions list. In the end, badges were tossed into drawers, and everybody walked except for the Hollywood madame. Probably just another story conjured up by the press, as Elizabeth Short was a fake call girl, and Brenda Allen looks like the sort of woman whose number you dial when you need a fake scandal cooked up. And anyways, just look at Norman Chandler at the Bushenwald concentration camp, third on the left. We're on page uh, 41 if you need to catch up. It is April of 1945, learning the craft, creating the news, working for the Zionist, his employers, getting his story straight with the other storytellers. But before taking over the family business, a background check on Chandler shows that he attended Hollywood High School. Not impressed? You will be. Here's something that I missed in my Manson papers. Vincent Big Bigliosi and Sharon Tate attended the very same high school. I mean, coincidences, coincidences. Hollywood High. Small world. Embarrassing tidbit to miss out on, I know. It's the little details. But that's only the beginning. A search on the internet will find hundreds of notable graduates rising from the hallways of Hollywood High. I've pulled just a few for your consideration. Carol Burnett, actress. Alan Ladd, actor. Carol Lombard, actress. Lana, Lana, uh, Lana Turner, actress. Ricky Nelson, singer. Sarah Jessica Parker, actress. Judy Garland, actress. Mickey Rooney, actor. James Garner, actor. Alan Hale, Jr., actor. John um, Houston, director, Frank Darabont, director, Chuck Jones, animator, Rob Brill, musician, Jill St. John, actress, Lawrence Fishburne, actor, Keith Carradine, actor, Robert Carradine, actor, Tuesday Weld, actress, Rita Wilson, actress, Faye Ray, actress, Meredith Baxter, actress, Brandy Singer, Cher Singer, Lon Chaney Jr., actor, Johnny Crawford, actor, Mike Farrell, actor, John Ritter, actor, I need another drink, just a second another drink of coffee the list of suspects runs on and on much like the names arising from hollywood high school for whatever reason that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever daniel Voorhees decided to call up the lodge and confess to the killing he was then eliminated as a suspect as his handwriting did not match the killers bummer perhaps they should have given him a Hearst's own newspaper and asked to see a demonstration of his cutting and pasting skills, but no. Look at the ominous lighting uh, Voorhees was painted in for his very own photo shoot. Probably another Perry Fowler original. In my early report, I made specific mention of the fact that Raymond Chandler had already eerily described the Black Dahlia narrative in his 1939 sleuth novel, The Big Sleep. I even confessed that he was intel without so much as taking a sledgehammer to 
my own cognitive dissonance. So many regrets. Before becoming accredited as the creator of the hard-boiled detective genre, Chandler was a Royal Air Force pilot. He was friends with MI6 agent Ian Fleming. The two appeared together on the BBC. And we also find associations between Chandler and Alfred Hitchcock, who in turn had connections of his own to British intel. The plot line to The Big Sleep goes something as follows. Chandler has Philip Marlowe, the, the familiar pr uh, protagonist of his crime literature, follow a prominent general's wild daughter to a flop house where secret porn is being filmed and girls are drugged and coaxed into sexual acts. The film ad ad adaptation, which starred Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, was released in August of 1946, less than half a year before the Black Dahlia murder. And isn't that something? That same year in 1946, Philip Marlowe's first original screenplay hit the big screen. Are you ready for this? It was called The Blue Dahlia. Spooks in the Long Beach drugstore named her after the movie. Bogey may have uh, not been the first actor to portray Marlowe on screen, and certainly not the last, but upon the book's transfer to film, most would consider him to be Chandler's quintessential creation. And now for some genealogy. I found three Mayflower passengers in his family lineage. John Hallen was his seventh great-grandfather. Eighth great-grandfathers include William White and Reverend John Robinson. And get this, his sixth great-grandmother, and uh, Pudiator, was executed for witchcraft in the Salem witch trial hoax of 1692. Ah, 1692. Similarly, Walt Disney is the sixth great-grandson of Reverend John Burroughs, executed for witchcraft, while Lucille Ball is the ninth great-grandfather father of Salem witch Rachel Venison. See what I mean? Every person just mentioned holds a special place among the children of Cain. Another convicted witch in Salem and Mary Perkins uh, Bradbury, or I'm sorry, another convicted witch is Salem in Salem. Uh, obviously it's getting late. In Salem is Mary Perkins Bradbury, Bogart's sixth great grand aunt via John Perkins. In the world of spooks, being related to a Salem witch gets you places. I, I talk about the, the genealogy to the Salem witches a lot. Lot. They, they spring up amongst these people. From Plymouth, I found 11 series of the Magna Carta, Magna Carta in his direct lineage. 21st great-grandfathers include John DeLacy, Gilbert de Clare, and Robert Fitzwalter. 22nd great-grandfathers include Hugh Le Bygod, William de Aubney, Richard de Clare, Robert de Ross, Sayher de Quincy, Roger Le Bygod, and Henry de... Bohan. His 23rd great-grandfather is Geoffrey de Say. Moving on down the line, King Louis VI of France is his 24th great-grandfather. William the Conqueror is his 25th great-grandfather. King Robert I of France is his 30th great-grandfather. Alfred the Great, 31st great-grandfather. And finally, Charlemagne, 33rd great-grandfather. Bogart is the blood of a different color, and that is blue. There is still but one more genealogy to cover today, and it concerns the killer, Orson Welles. Yes, the killer. Didn't Wells play Hearst in a movie once? Hearst must have been a fan. Technically, the Black Dahlia was a magical act, and Wells was a renowned musician. Therefore, he couldn't possibly be the killer, as we are only dealing with everybody's favorite saw and half trick. But first, before we get to those details, his family lineage. And I'm going to need another drink before I get through all these names. With Wells, we find three Mayflower passengers, John Alden, Francis Cook, and Richard Warren, are all eighth great-grandfathers, and like Bogart, his seventh great-uncle, Captain John Alden, was accused of witchcraft in Salem. 
They're all related. I then found Magna Carta sureties in his parentage, eight of them in all. John DeLacy and Gilbert de Clare making make up his 21st great-grandfathers. Uh, Hugh Lee Bygod, Richard de Clare, Sayher de Quincy, Henry de Bohan, and William de Mowbray are all 22nd great-grandfathers. But as Roger Lay Bygod takes up the rear as his 23rd great-grandfather. Moving on down the line, King Edward I of England is his 19th great-grandfather, King Henry III of England, 20th great-grandfather, King Louis VI of France, 24th great-grandfather, William the Conqueror of England, 25th, King Robert I of France, 30th, Alfred the Great, King of the Anglo-Saxons, 31st great-grandfather, and last but certainly not least, Charlemagne, King of the Franks, 33rd great-grandfather. Conclusively, he's a king, in my opinion. During the war, and as part of his Mercury Wonder Show, pay attention to the Mercury there, Wells performed for soldiers on the very site where the body of Elizabeth Short was found. Specifically, he sawed women in half. He originally performed the trick on his wife, Rita Hayworth, until Columbia Pictures banned her from participating. Wait, didn't Jeff Connors work for Columbia? That's probably only a coincidence. He then performed the trick on two other girls. The first was uh, Marlene Dietrich. Before I tell you who the second girl is, you may want to hold on to something. I am not responsible for any injuries acquired while reading my work or listening. That person was Marilyn Monroe. They're eighth cousins, by the way. He and... Um, uh, or he, he and he are, are eighth cousins. Also, Marilyn Monroe was a man, but you probably knew that already. Page 47. The magic doesn't end there. Wells' movie, The Lady from Shanghai, was made in 1946, but it wasn't released until 1948. It starred Rita Hayworth playing opposite himself. Also, Rita Hayworth inspired the, um, the uh, atomic bombs and the Bikini Atoll, just so you know. If you're a regular around here, then you'll know that this isn't our first rodeo with Rita. Okay, I guess I talk about it right here. If you recall, Intel named an atomic bomb in the Bikini Atoll after Hayworth. So, busy girl. There's one specific set design in the movie, a twisted funhouse of mirrors involving confession and murder. Also, the split psyche. Wells specifically wanted sev severed limbs and mutilated faces to embody the stage. Mannequins littered the scene. Particularly odd about these mannequins, however, are the lacerations virtually identical to those inflicted upon Short, the Glasgow smile. There are cuts ear to ear just below uh, the zygomatic arch. In one of Elizabeth Short's last letters home, her sister Virginia claimed she had written that a movie director was going to give her a screen test. I knew it. A clue. Short was a mannequin all along. Robert Manley's trip to San Diego and back was something akin to Weekend of Bernie's. Another Wells connection is the reported fact that he and Short frequented, frequented uh, Brittingham's restaurant in Los Angeles. We know this because the waitresses who worked there, who I can only suspect doubled as actresses, claimed Short was going out with someone at Columbia Pictures. Also, his name was George, which just so happens to be the director's full name. George Orson Wells. On the day in which the killer mailed a packet to Los Angeles newspapers, January 24th, Wells applied for his passport and then spent the next 10 months in Europe, despite not complimenting or despite not completing the editing of Macbeth, the film he was currently directing and starring in. The scene containing the mannequins was ultimately deleted from the film by Henry Kahn. 
The fact that they were created three months before her murder is probably just a coincidence and is in no way intended as viewer programming. Only a photograph or two survive as testimony to the scene. Construction of the mutilated mannequin heads was overseen by makeup artist Bob Schiffer. I decided to look further into this Schiffer fellow, and wouldn't you know it, as specialists in women's makeup, Schiffer was often credited with developing the quote-unquote 1940s look. Go figure. What is the 1940s look, you ask? I had the same question. Red lips and thin, arching eyebrows. That's Schiffer's signature. Apparently, the Glasgow smile is another one of his signatures, but he's mainly uncredited for that. Here we can see Bob Schiffer cozying up with Georgie Porgy, giving him the right look. Some of the other faces he made up in Hollywood were Rita Hayworth, who is uh, Georgie Porgy's wife, Joanne, Joanne Crawford, Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, and Errol Flynn, as well as Fred Astaire and Ginger Robert Rogers. Did he make up Elizabeth Short's face? We are not told. Much of Schiffer's early work is uncredited anyways. His aboriginal film is believed to have been The Last Days of Pompeii in 1935, in which makeup was applied to hundreds of extras who were then promptly thrown to the lions. The Intelnet tells me Schiffer was best known for the 1962 film Birdman of Alcatraz, in which Burt Lancaster ages from 18 to 80 in 143 minutes. We are told it was a painstaking transformation that took two and a half hours each morning in which Lancaster was applied with rubber jowls, a beard, and a toupee for thinning hair. After persuading the actor to shave his head, he then wrinkled Lancaster's skin by hand, stretching it with tape and letting it crawl back into place. Impressive. You have to wonder how many hours the makeup department put into Elizabeth's short movie. Uh, several hundred other films were attributed to Schiffer. Here's just a few of them. A Night at the Opera, The Wizard of Oz, the Lady from Shanghai, which is the one we talked about with Orson Welles, An American in Paris, uh, Gigi, Judgment at Nuremberg, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, My Fair Lady, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Starting in 1968, Schiffer became head of the makeup department at Disney. Wow. It was a position he would hold until his retirement in 2001. Remember when Dean Jones became a dog in the shaggy DA? Schiffer. And then there was that time when Daryl Hannah became a mermaid in the Ron Howard movie. Schiffer again. And wouldn't you know it, the, the New York Times tells us he lent his services to law enforcement, but also the military. Here they write, he helped with camouflage work in World War II, and in 1961, during the Bay of Pigs invasion, he made up United States operatives to look more Cuban. Wait, hold, hold on. Hollywood had a part to play in the Bay of Pigs invasion? Say it ain't so. The Intel-based newspaper further states that Schiffer created mock wounds for hundreds of Marines and sailors as part of battlefield training exercises. Once again, the New York Times is far too generous in what they're willing to offer up. Perhaps they simply expect your cognitive dissonance to win the day. Part three, George... Hodel, Doctor of Evil, actor. We're getting close to the end. Up until this point, I've purposely been holding back. That is because we are nearing the end, and I like saving the best for last. Have you ever, have you ever heard of the man who wore a thousand faces, none his own? Probably not. 
there are probably several actors who fit that bill. Lon Chaney is one of them. If you were considerate enough to glance over my list of Hollywood High graduates, you will probably recall that Chaney's son, Lon Chaney Jr., was one of them, but I digress. As we are dealing with a thousand faces, and Sir Alec Guinness is one of them. You will tell me that we are looking at a picture of Dr. George Hill Hodel, not Guinness. I wouldn't be so sure of that. Hodo is simply a character in a Hollywood production, and Bob Schiffer's our miracle man. The script has given Hodel a backstory. He's a child musical prodigy born to Russian Jews, already laying it, con- <laughs> already laying it on kind of thick until we can find him in an intimate friendship with Man Ray, a surrealist and dadaist photographer, as well as noted Hollywood High alumni John Huston. Houston. Huston. Fun fact, Huston liked to film his movies on location rather than a Hollywood soundstage. Also, Bogey was a staple of Huston's films. Good to know. We are furthermore told the man who lived at 5121 Franklin Avenue was prominent in Hollywood circles as an abortions doctor, protected by corrupt officials within the LAPD. Sounds like a sophisticated role. I'm not saying George Hodel is Alex Guinness, but really... Try to spot which of the three isn't him. Hint, Hodel is sandwiched between them. You will tell me I made that too easy, as I've already planted the exact same picture of Hodel above. And that is because, like practically every other suspect in the Black Valley movie, we are shown hardly any photos to prove their existence except when Hearst reporters delivered to us, or what they delivered to us from the newsstand. Alec Guinness is a real person. Hodel is simply a character, as assuredly as Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson is a character in The Bridge on the River Kwai. Again, I already know what you're going to say. You're going to say something like, why don't you find a picture of my grandmother on the internet? Your grandmother wasn't an elite Hollywood abortion doctor accused of sawing a porn actress slash call girl in half. You would think the paparazzi would be all over his barbarous bum like mayonnaise on a bologna sandwich. Hiding out behind the abortion clinic, waiting for the latest starlet to drive up for her appointment. Oh, sure, the press respects a patient-doctor confidentiality agreement when it comes to murdering the child. There's some irony for you. But Hodo isn't simply agreed upon to be a baby killer. He's the killer. Top banana, numero uno, muckety-muck, the grand pooba. Where are the pictures of the man? They should be everywhere. For decades, we should be reading tabloids proclaiming Black Dahlia Killer shows off 500-pound summer bod. But no, nothing. It certainly doesn't help that Hodel ends up being yet another suspect in the murder of Jean French. During the winter of 1947, French was found dead, dumped in a vacant lot, and nude. Her killing uh, became known as the Red Lipstick Murder due to a cryptic message written on her abdomen which reads... F-U-B-D. Very classy. Al Guinness. Between 1943 and 1950, Hodo is claimed to have murdered nine women in total. Jean French, Gladys Kern, Mimi Boomhauer, Elizabeth Short, and Ora Murray. This is partly due to every murder mentioned happening within 10 miles of Hodo's house and downtown private medical practice. Some have even gone so far as to claim Hodo as the Zodiac Killer. Why do I get the feeling that Guinness was intended for a much larger role. 
Guinness had started out in theater years earlier, but his two breakthrough film performances were Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, Twist which happened in 1946 and 1948, respectively. Jane Elizabeth uh, Spangler was an actress who went missing on October 7th, 1949, but was never found. Hodel again. Boomhauer wasn't found either. Perhaps Hodel is the role which Guinness later shied away from due to other commitments, so that not even the Spangler or Boomhauer stories have closure. We are shown one photo of a much older George Hodel on the internet. That's his son next to him, Steve Hodel. Look at him just standing there, only pretending to get along, waiting on his father to die so that he can finally rat him out as the killer. How nice of him. It appears he's written three books on the subject. It's the George Hodel Trilogy of Evil or what have you. They're called Black Dahlia, Avenger 1, 2, and 3. Each book gives more evidence as to why his father did it. There's even another called Most Evil, Making Four and All, in which he claims his father was the Zodiac Killer. It's all Cod's wallop, and Steve Hodel knows it. The younger Hodel has his own bio page, which lists him as a Hollywood division detective. It then states, during his career at Hollywood Homicide, Steve promoted to Detective 2 and in 1983 was the senior field homicide detective. Wait, hold the press. How does one become an LAPD homicide detective when his father was a serial killer exactly? He even says as much. You would think that makes for a comp compromising position, especially considering how Lipsick, Zodiac, and the Black Dahlia are all technically cold case files, and his father was attached to them in one way or another. I will remind you that Holdo waited until after his father died to crack the case, telling us his entire career is compromised. Considering how he was put into a position which might guard the truth of the doctor for the remainder of his life, you'd think Steve Hoda will do a better job of preserving his father's legacy. In actuality, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. He has continued George Hodel's profession, and that is in the intel department. Continuing, we read this. Steve promoted to, to Detective 3, the highest attainable rank in detectives, and retired from LAPD in 1986. Sounds like they're describing masonry, don't it? Cops and robbers and Freemasons. It's all essentially the same thing. But that's none of yours or my business. Tell me Hodel doesn't look like a spitting image of Alec Guinness and vice versa. Even as old men. Plant some glasses, a beard, and a wig on Obi-Wan and we'll call it a day. That's George Hodel. The doctor died in 1999 in San Francisco. Perfect time to retire the character as Guinness died one year later in 2000. Bob Schiffer wouldn't retire from Disney until 2001. Probably waited around to finish his projects. Tie up loose ends. He didn't, he didn't wait around for the real Elizabeth Short to die, as she had already completed her part in January of 1947. Schiffer died in 2005, but Short, or rather the Black Dahlia, she outlived everyone. You're about to find out who she is. Part 4. We're on page um, 57. Part four, will the real Elizabeth Short please stand up? Were you expecting someone else? Probably not a princess. The Black Dahlia, that's her. Elizabeth Short's real name is Fazia Fouad. I believe if I'm pronouncing that right. Fazia Fouad. She was the daughter of Fouad I, seventh son of Ismail the Magnificent of Egypt. 
cleans up nicely, don't she? A little makeup and some jewels around an otherwise naked neck goes a long way. That signature lush head of spidery black hair looks nice with the crown. Still tight-lipped, though. Rather, rarely seemingly comfortable around the camera, as hundreds of pictures seem to show. Probably because she was such a badass. You know who else was a badass? Cleopatra was a badass. Both operatives, too, ruling their kingdoms by a little something I like to call magic. Fazia's marriage to Iranian crown prince in 1939 was nothing more than a political deal, which aimed to consolidate Egyptian power and influence in the Middle East while simultaneously blending the regality of an Egyptian royal household with the new Iranian regime. That's the exoteric explanation at any rate. I looked that much up on the Wikipedia. Her husband's name was Mohammed Riza Pahlavi. She was also a Trojan horse, as you shall soon see. Fazia had some friends at Langley. For her role as, role as Elizabeth Short, they had to deconstruct the doll and dirty her up a bit, toss the pencil for the eyebrows and lose the cherry lipstick, tangle the hair, toss the comb out, go with the wild and free look, and while we're at it, smudge the face. It all serves a purpose. Give her the look of promiscuity. The biggest difference that I see is the nose. From this angle, Elizabeth Short's nose is a bit thinned in the middle and, and well-rounded at the bottom. Nothing a reconstruction guy like Schiffer couldn't handle. Makeup does wonders. Fazia's eyes are dark here due to the lighting. Short is staring directly at a bulb. Ah, that's better. The ancient world of the 1940s is resurrected in our modern day with a splash of color. Do you see what I did there? Resurrected. We'll get to that. Now, both pair of eyes have a doppelganger look to them, don't they? In some pictures, Fazia's eyes look hazel, but here they're sapphire, perhaps even turquoise. You will tell me the nose is off and that this can't possibly be the same person. Have we forgotten already about Bob Schiffer and the magic of Hollywood? I will remind you that we have no proof whatsoever that Elizabeth Short did little more than pose for a few, for a few photographers and finally Schiffer, the mannequin maker. Yes, there were boots on the ground, but only for the camera. All the people who claimed to have seen her at one place or another, or to even have dated her, were probably crisis actors or spooks. Still not convinced, are you? It's the nose, isn't it? You're only making this hard on yourself. Fine. I didn't want to have to do this. But we're going, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane. The actress on the left and the right is the same woman, Nicole Kidman. But the nose. But how? I know. Kidman is playing Virginia Woolf in the 2000 film, The Hours. Amazing what a little makeup can do. The woman with the crazy eyes is Charlize Theron. And no, I'm not going to show you what Charlize Theron looks like this time around. You're going to have to look her up for yourself. Well, get to it. I'm waiting. Did you type her name into the search engine yet? Even in a police lineup, it would be difficult to tell them apart. This is the extent she went to in the 2003 movie Monster. And now it's time to play a game, which I like to call Spot the Imposter. Tilda Swinton played the White Witch, among many other transformative roles. You can see what Tilda Swinton looks like on the right. And so, one of these above six pictures is not Tilda Swinton. Go ahead, give it a try. No cheating on the internet. Are you ready for the answer? Barbara Kellerman is the imposter, and she's playing the White Witch. 
you you will tell me that was a blow a blow below the belt. Seeing as how I mentioned Swinton as playing the White Witch once, but it's not like I told you to eliminate it. Eliminate it. Yes, Swinton did indeed play the White Witch, but that was another movie. The old man is her, though, as assuredly as the old woman. But even the character in the bottom left corner looks nothing like her. None of them do. It's all in the makeup and the wardrobe and the lighting, isn't it? And now we get back to Fazia Fouad. See if you can guess which of the two photos is a role she's playing in a movie. I know, that was too easy. The side profile gives her away, though. Same chin. Even the nose from this angle is a match. Fazia still looks uncomfortable here, though she is given something to focus in upon while the photographer captures her image, namely her own daughter, Princess Shanaz. She's not nearly so glammed up as we've seen her before, probably because we're observing her day-to-day on the royal grounds. And then on page 63, it looks like another scene from a movie, don't it? We're looking at the funeral of Elizabeth Short. Yes, we're back in the Black Dahlia movie again. The date was January 25th. Ten days have passed since Biddy Brissinger discovered the mannequin. Fazia Fouad could finally go back to being her old self again. Meanwhile, there are only three mourners in attendance. Who are these people, you ask? That's what I want to know. Probably actors. You're probably wondering what the Queen of Iran was truly up to while her Black Dahlia counterpart was being activated in Boston and then wreaking havoc with the sailors across the Southland. The Wikipedia hints at it in her article's opening paragraph. I'm going to skip down page 64. It reads, Fazia obtained an Egyptian divorce in 1945, not recognized in Iran until 1948, under which their one daughter, Princess Shanaz, would be brought up in Iran. Sure, the Black Dahlia was commissioned in 1943, and Fouad didn't get around to a divorce until 1945, but Agent Fazia didn't really have boots on the ground until the later half of 1946, mostly to meet with the production team and, if needed, uh, fellow cast members. Also to participate in location shoots, like the John Marshall High School session. Why would Fouad simply walk away from being an Iranian queen for lack of love? Is Is that what they are going with? I guess that's what we are going with. Know who else probably faked her own death? Cleopatra did. I say probably, but that double suicide snake story has all the stink of an intel psyop written all over it. She was in bed with Rome the entire time, just like Fazia Fouad and Elizabeth Short. Another comparison between the two is that they are both regarded as the last queen of Egypt. And anyways, exhibiting one's death and resurrection is a prominent theme for the mystery religion neophyte and secret society elite. On the morning of January 15th, Masonic donut eaters knew precisely what they were investigating. If anything, the murder psyop would have proved her worth with the intel community, particularly the CIA. What are the chances that that the, the queen would appear on a cover of Life magazine a year before the beginnings of the Black Dahlia project officially kicked off? Slim to none. Only one word comes to mind, spook. On September 21st, 1942, the fate of the war hadn't even been decided on. Intel, however, simply couldn't wait to show off their latest puppet state, everything the Zionist New World Order had to offer. Life magazine was in the know. And then we, we see a little quote there from Wikipedia. The Wikipedia has no trouble naming the United States and United Kingdom as the orchestrators of the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat. 
Though it was known in Iran as the 28th Mordad coup d'etat, we then read it was the overthrow of the democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammed. It's getting late. I can't pronounce that name. Mossadegh, in favor of strengthening the uh, monarchic monarchic rule of the Shah, Mohammed Riza Pahlavi. Recognize Pahlavi. That's uh, that would be the Queen's husband. There's the Mr. and Mrs. looking uncomfortable as they so often do together. The photographer probably caught them again, mid-argument. I can hear the queen now. Fine, I'll die for your OSS buddies, but then afterwards you can expect my divorce. In which Pallavi responds, they're the CIA now, Fod, and they make movies. So awkward. Egypt, Egypt had plans indeed. Claiming American Great Britain were, was involved is just a nice way of saying the Iranian coup was a CIA and MI6 operation from the start, though the Muslim clergy was also involved. The Americans called it Operation Ajax, the United Kingdom Operation Boots. Everybody wanted a part in screwing over the Middle East for Zionism. The Wikipedia offers us a picture of their Iranian coup. Fun times. I added in the second for good measure. As a disclaimer, I have never driven a tank, nor have I straddled or ridden upon one, certainly not while in motion. I haven't played my part in the invasion of another country either, let alone a coup of my own. But I am pretty sure if I did that I wouldn't straddle a tank from its loaded barrel. That's not how these machines of war work, nor does it appear safe to the very piece of equipment he's mimicking. A little too hot in the pants, if you ask me. That's how boo-boos happen. And besides, victories are rarely won from such innuendos, unless we're talking about obelisks, which certainly do have a habit of looming victorious over everyone. Egypt has obelisks, but Rome has more of them. And since we're comparing sizes, America has the biggest one of all. Anywho, Pahlavi's rule over Iran wouldn't last. The CIA had other plans in 1979, and that was that. Still a sweet ride, though. Fazia Fuad returned to Egypt and married Ismail um, Chirine, Chirine six months after her divorce. Her new husband was initially a banker working for the Sassoon family. Hmm? Did she realize they were Jews? Ismail Chirine, Chirine, Chirine is also listed as a military officer and UN diplomat. Jack of all trades. He even had a part in the 1948 war with Israel. Princess Fazia spent the remainder of her life hopping back and forth between sunny winters along the Egyptian coast and all that a summer in Switzerland has to offer. Nice. And then the Wikipedia offers us this last nugget of information. It says Fazia's death was mistakenly reported upon in January 2005. That's not a first if we take Elizabeth Short into account. The official narrative is such a tease, isn't it? Apparently, journalists were incapable of telling the difference between the last queen of Egypt and Princess Farouk. I'm sure it happens to the queen of England all the time. <laughs> That's probably a little outdated now. Can't seem to tell her apart. Uh, can't seem to tell her apart from Camilla. Oh, well, another day. The wiki offers us a link to Princess Farouk, but no picture of her can be found. Probably because they look so much alike without the makeup. We'd get the two confused and they can't have that. Elizabeth Short, cross that, check, cross that out. Fazia Fouad of Egypt died in Alexandria in 2013 at the age of 91. 
and I survived that very long read. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it was educational. And that is that I'm spent. That's all, folks. I loved it, Noel. Thank you. And uh, I have to say, out of all those actors who were reading off, I had a bed and breakfast in Central City, Colorado. And Lillian Gish, Mae West, and um, John Houston all stayed at that house because there was an opera house close by. And um, I just wonder, I just love all the psyops that you're exposing us to. So thank you. Well, you know, eventually it starts to become really, e it starts becoming really easy because you start recognizing the same names over and over and over and over again. When I, when I go through my paper a couple weeks from now, the Jim Morrison Intel project, it's just, it becomes a comedy because you see the same pimps and handlers connected with everybody. And um, it just, it, it becomes a, like there's no way this is a coincidence and if i could just reiterate you know i, I didn't go through guys all the um i only kept to the top suspects i mean there were so many suspects and it's just outrageously comedic um the whole thing and how it was all led in the media and the press by hearse and he was leading the police investigation and all that kind of stuff and it just it, i don't know Back, you know, back then, maybe people had no context for uh, what is real and what is not. I, I, I have a very hard time believing that something like this could get pulled off today as they did then and people would buy it. It's well, I mean, obviously, the, the, the sleepy masses would. I mean, you look at um, the Boston bombing as a clear testimony to how easily people can be duped. But um, yeah, it's just. There's no way something like that would, but you know, the black Dahlia guys, it, hopefully that uh, runs some bills for you guys. Like the black Dahlia is, is there's movies on her and, and that's, that's one of the big red flags that should come up. I, I should add that, you know, just go show all the influences that she's had in Hollywood and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, obviously they're just writing more scripts based on scripts and scripts. I only made it through that because of my coffee. That was a good choice, Rebecca, that I switched from tea to coffee.